0: The pastor wants to teach on living in the fullness of the knowledge of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, living in the fullness of the knowledge of God. Verse 1 through verses 3. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, living in the fullness of the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, for a few moments as we look into the scripture, we pray that you would speak to all of our hearts. Let it be a message that is clear. Let it be one that encourages and speaks to us. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen, amen, amen. This This epistle was written in approximately A.D. 66. And when Peter wrote it, he wrote it knowing that as an apostle and a disciple of Jesus, that it would be eagerly read by his friends. We don't ever want to forget the story of Simon Peter. This man had been raised a Jew. His brother Andrew and he both were fishermen. And the Bible teaches that Andrew heard John the Baptist preaching. And one day, Andrew was so intrigued by this man, Jesus, that he came to know through John the Baptist, that he ran and got his brother, Peter, and said, I believe we found him, who's the Messiah. When Peter approached Jesus, Jesus told him that his name would no longer be Peter, but they called him Cephas, which means a stone. A short time later, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and the Bible teaches that he saw Peter and Andrew working in their fishing business, and the Lord said, follow me. The two of them then turned and walked away from all that they knew in the fishing business so that they could learn to be fishers of men. During this time, Peter became quite close to Jesus. Peter was the one that said, you're the Christ, when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Peter was the one that had the mother-in-law, who was healed by the laying on of hands when Jesus entered the home. Peter, of course, was the one who was very impulsive, stubborn at times. Sometimes he said things that he wished later he could get back, but it was impossible for that to have been done. He was so close to the Lord that when Jesus told him that all of them would betray him, Peter said, Lord, if all of the other disciples walk away from me, I'll never do so. But yet peter lived long enough to see and to hear that rooster crow he knew that god's word through jesus lips had come to pass when they came to apprehend jesus the bible says all the disciples fled and forsook the lord in the garden peter had been one of them that eventually led but Peter was also the one that the Bible says when they came to get him, he pulled a sword out and swung it at a man's head. Scripture says he took a man's ear off, and Jesus reached up and touched the man's ear and healed him. Even going to Calvary, people were still seeing miracles. Peter was so broken over the fact that he had betrayed the Lord and denied the Lord that Even in the resurrection, he was ashamed of himself. But yet Jesus said, Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Jesus was letting Peter know that there's nothing you've done that is beyond the bounds of my forgiveness. I still want to use you. And of course, when Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter was on the hilltop staring into the sky. And when the spirit of God was poured out, Peter stood up with the other hundred or so disciples and preached the gospel and 3,000 souls came to know the Savior. This was the Peter that had walked with the Lord and knew him personally. He is now at a place in his life where according to Second Peter chapter 1 verse 14, he knows that he is soon going to die. And he puts down on paper, A few short thoughts for those readers that he wanted to encourage because he saw the coming apostasy and the falling away. If you had to write a final letter to your loved ones, what would you say? What would your final words be to your grandkids, to your closest friends, to your neighbors? If you had to leave one final letter and pour your heart out to them, what would you say? Well, Peter, he wrote to them and in verse one said that I'm writing to those who have obtained like precious faith. So he's writing to Christians. This letter is not to sinners. And when he says of like precious faith, he said, this is a faith that is of the of the same kind and of equal value. Even though I'm an apostle, he says, and you're a believer, a lay person, we have the same faith. That's important for all of us to realize because we have a tendency to say things like, I wish I could believe like so and so. I wish I had faith like this man or this woman. You have the same faith that Jesus' apostles and disciples had. You may not apply it, you may not exercise it the same way, but you still have the same faith that they had. As a young preacher, I'd read stories of different evangelists and pastors, and i think to myself, I'd love to be able to walk with God like that and see the kinds of things that they saw. God had to remind me through this verse that I have the same faith that they have. You can do the works of Jesus if you believe in the manner that they believed. So the Lord says, through Peter here, that they also have the righteousness of God and our Savior. Somewhere in eternity past, the Godhead determined that God the Son would come into this world to bear the sins of many. They knew before Adam and Eve ever sinned, before there ever was a Garden of Eden, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost knew that there would come into existence something called sin. But having already prepared the cure before the illness ever manifested in the earth, the scripture says that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. This means that since it had already been determined that he would come into this world to die, God had prepared a way for man to be made right with God in the image of God. Because sin changed us. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God somewhat. They were excluded from the Garden of Eden. And all of us that are born into this world are born in sin, shaped in iniquity, and we are excluded from paradise. We are not born into the kingdom of God. A life has to be changed. A heart needs to be regenerated so that a person can be become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Little children are born with original sin. They're stained with original sin. An infant is not guilty of actual sin because the infant doesn't know the difference between right and wrong when they're that young. But you know that they are touched by original sin, you can take any infant or toddler and hold that little baby and if they've got a little toy in their hand and they're holding on to it and making all kinds of noise and the older sibling comes by and takes it from them, then the little baby's face frowns all up and they poke their, their bottom lip out and get angry. And if you put the little baby within vicinity of their sibling, they'll reach out and grab it and snatch it from them. Where do you think those emotions come from? Those emotions come out of the original sin that affects us. The Bible says, by one man's sin, all were made sinners. But through Jesus Christ, we're made righteous. Now, it's interesting, Then in verse 2, it talks about grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is the favor of God. Grace is the power of God that changes a life. Grace is the love of God and the law of God mingled together. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 25, it tells the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible says that when the Ark was made, it was constructed of wood. And then it was coated in gold. And it said on every corner of the ark, there were some rings. And through those rings, poles were to be placed so that whenever the ark and the children of Israel moved, the ark could be lifted up off the ground and then be carried wherever the children of Israel went. Inside of the ark were the Ten Commandments. Aaron's rod that budded, and then that miraculous pot of manna that the Lord said placed in there as a remembrance of his ability to supply their needs. Now bring this out because that ark contained the law of God. Wherever Israel journeyed, wherever they traveled, God wanted his law to venture along with them and to be in the midst of them. But on top of that ark, there was something called a mercy seat. And that mercy seat fit the exact dimensions of the top of the ark. And on top of that mercy seat were two cherubs or angelic beings that faced one another with their angel wings uh, pointed towards the other. And they both looked down into the law. And the Bible said that this was called the mercy seat. And it was ever a reminder that God looks at Israel, despite all of their sins and the requirement for them to keep the law, God daily looks at them through the mercies that he's provided. So for us, we know that the mercies of God are new every morning. We're Christians, but we still live according to the law of God. Even in the New Testament, the 10 Commandments are still are still obligated for obligated upon us. So, so the Bible says in the Old Testament, "Thou shalt not steal." Paul says in the New Testament, "Provide things honest in the sight of all men." In the Ten Commandments, it said, "You're not to bear false witness." Paul says in the New Testament, "Lie not one to another." In the Ten Commandments, the very first one says, you're to have no other God, no other image. Don't bow down to any God. The last verse of 1 John says, little children, stay away from idols. Over and over again, the Ten Commandments are found in the New Testament because with The Christian life, we are to live our life in accordance with those aspects of the law, but knowing that the grace of God is mingled with the law so that God looks at us with merciful eyes. And his heart towards us is one of compassion and loving kindness. What is grace? Something that's transformative. There are people who sing the song Amazing Grace and it doesn't change them at all. But I don't think there's anything amazing about any grace that doesn't change anyone's life. It's truly amazing if it changes how we live. What is peace? It's more than the absence of hostility. Peace is a consequence of a well-ordered life when everything is in its proper place things are peaceful. As long as everything in your body is functioning the way it's supposed to function, you're a happy, happy person. But pain is an indicator that something's out of order. A joint, a bone, a tendon, an infected organ, any kind of pain is an indicator that your body is not at peace. And when you go to the doctor, what's the first thing he does? He says, well, where, where's the pain? And you say, it's somewhere in this area here. So he goes to poking around until he hits that spot where you jump up off the table. And once you jump up, he knows exactly where he's found the problem, and he stays right there until he can restore health and peace to that particular area. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. As a Christian, God's not angry with me, I'm not angry with him. The peace treaty's been signed. Our relationship is the way that it should be. I've been reconciled to him by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that peace now is powerful because I know that I have a friend in God. And the Bible says in Philippians, we have the peace of God. So I have peace with God, but also have his peace inside of me. How else do you explain how Jesus in the middle of a storm could go down into the inner part of the ship and go to sleep when everybody else was nervous? All the disciples had buckets and they were trying to get the water out of the ship and they were heaving and hoeing it over the sides of the vessel and they were nervous and Jesus was sleeping and finally someone said, let's go down and wake up the Savior. And can you imagine being in a dead sleep, waking up to 12 grown men with their hair matted to their faces and they're drenched and dripping wet and they're screaming saying, Master, don't you even care that we're dying? Jesus wakes up in peace, he conducts himself peacefully, and he goes up top to the ship, and he brings the peace that was in his heart to the lake called Galilee. It's the peace of God that makes it possible for you and me to hold it together when we're passing through a storm. Now, you've probably experienced this before. Sometimes, when we go through different situations in our life, our marriage, our homes, with your family, there are people get nervous and they wonder, how is it ever gonna work out? But haven't there been moments in your life when a calamity or tragedy occurred, you still had a sense of peace and you knew God was gonna fix this? That there was no need for you to fret or worry. That's what Peter is talking about here in verse two. And he tells tells us us that that this grace grace and this peace is multiplied through the knowledge of God. So God has grace and peace for every event, grace and peace for every circumstance, grace and peace for every situation in your life, and there's an unending supply of it, and God multiplies it so that you have more than you need. That's why God could say to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. God has what you need. There's nothing you're facing out there in that parking lot that's that's bigger than God. God has grace enough to bring you through any trial. And even though the devil sticks his head up and tells you over and over that it's never going to work out in your favor, God has grace and peace for you. And he gives it to you by what you know concerning God. Knowledge is important. You've heard people say sometimes that, what you don't know won't hurt you. That's not true. What you, don't know could de- what you don't know could destroy you. The Bible says my people perish because of a lack of knowledge. Think of how difficult it must have been 50 years ago, 100 years ago, for a man or woman that couldn't read. Because of what they didn't know, it basically crippled them in many aspects of life. Because if you can't read, you probably can't count. If you can't read, you can't assemble information through a book. Imagine what what life is like if you can't gather knowledge with sight. If you've never seen green, you can't identify with someone who describes it to you. The Bible says here the grace and peace is multiplied through the knowledge of God. I think the knowledge of God is one of the most important things we can learn, and there are several things we need to understand about it. Now, over in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, I'll read a little verse to you, because I use this verse very often when I'm called to go into schools to counsel with young people. They call me and they say, Pastor, we got somebody who's just acting out. We can't do anything with them. Could you please come in and just talk with them? Or they say, we have somebody who's struggling with their sexual identity and just want to know, would you please just come in and sit and talk with them? And I always say to them, you know, I'm a pastor. You know, my perspective is Christian and biblical. And then when I go in and spend an hour or two with the young people, Genesis 1:27 is always in my mind and in my conversation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The first thing a man or woman needs to know is that man is a product of God's handiwork. That means that if if we've come from the hand of God and we've been made by God, then 99.9.9.9% of all of our problems can be solved by the knowledge of God. Yeah. Somebody dealing with emotional breakdowns, they can recover with the knowledge of God. The Bible says, that will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on the Lord. You don't have to have a nervous breakdown. Emotional problems can be solved in the knowledge of God because Paul said, I bring my body, all of that under subjection. You are not supposed to be ruled by your emotions. If you let your emotions control you entirely, your life will forever be on a roller coaster because every time somebody says something or does something to you, your reaction is going to be emotional, and that is exactly what the devil wants. God wants you to live your life in control of who you are. So, Even from an emotional standpoint, it can be solved in the knowledge of God. And when the Bible makes it very plain that our Father is a great physician, that Jesus is a great physician, that the Holy Spirit brings healing, even bodily, we are to ask God and believe that God would touch this physical body that he made, that he created. Now notice in that last sentence of chapter one, verse 27, it says, male and female created he them. You either believe the Bible or you don't. So that's the identity crisis solved in a sentence. God made them a male and a female. I asked one lady who was telling me when they had to take people in to do a urinalysis and folks were running around asking well, if you have somebody identifying as a lady or a lady identifying as a man, what what uh, bathroom should they use? And so we were talking back and forth about this, and they just kind of mentioned that to me and asked me. I said, it's a very, very simple situation to me. I said, it's not about how they identify, it's about how they are. I said, what kind of plumbing do they have? Then that will determine what restroom they All to use. The scripture says here in Genesis 1 verse 27 that in the image of God, God made made them. So that means that every human was born to be an image bearer of God. But sin, Adam's sin, Original sin, imputed to us because of the fact that we come into this world as a descendant of Adam, has distorted the very image of God so that people don't see God inside of many sinful people's lives. And our role is to try to restore that image. How do we do it? Introducing people to Jesus Christ. We show them who Christ is, give them a beautiful picture of the Lord, and if they receive the Lord Jesus Christ and that shattered, fragmented, broken image is then restored whole so that they can see themselves as God wants them to be. So this is how I minister to many of the young people and sometimes even older people. So many situations can be solved in the knowledge of God. I'll give you another one from Genesis chapter 1. Verse number 1, when I graduated from high school, within one month, my feet were standing in the dirt in South Carolina in boot camp for the United States Marine Corps. When I signed my name on the dotted line, they bought me for $335 a month. I signed up. 1987, when I joined, South Carolina became my new address. I graduated, they sent me to Camp Johnson, North Carolina for school. I finished up school, I filled out my dream sheet for where I wanted to go, and they sent me to Okinawa, Japan, island over there that is only six miles wide and 66 miles long. 12 months, I was in Okinawa. I left Okinawa, they sent me back to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I was working with the military police. My address changed several times on that base. From there, they sent me to Quantico, Virginia, to FBI Academy, and to Marine Security Guard School, so that I could become a Marine Security Guard serving as a, as, a as a protector, protector for, for diplomatic, diplomatic personnel and diplomatic establishments. Establishment. my first side of a, of, of a duty was Jeddah Saudi Arabia right on the Red Sea. I was stationed there with four other Marines working at the American consulate. From there 16 months in Istanbul Turkey. When I was in Turkey, God dealt with my heart about getting out of the military. I left the military, exited on good terms, came back to the states to Cleveland, Ohio, briefly. Then returned to the Middle East, went to Amman, Jordan, lived my first year with an Iraqi family, my second year with a Palestinian family, studied Arabic in school, studied Syriac in the home, Graduated from school, moved to Israel, went to Hebrew school. From Hebrew school, I came back to the States, then went down to Lima, Peru, then up in the mountains of Peru to work work with Wycliffe Bible translators, came back to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I made my way up here and came And started pastoring here with Tiffany. As you can see, I've had a number of addresses before I ever saw my 29th birthday. Now I say that because my life in the early years has been about starting over, beginning again. In Genesis chapter 1, notice what it says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Notice that. There's a beginning to everything. It says the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. What are you getting at, Pastor? I'm telling you that everything that has a beginning, that has God at the beginning, God will create something. In the beginning, God Every place that I moved to, because I loved God, because I honored God, because I worshiped God, and I had God whenever I began again, God created something marvelous, God created something spiritual, God created things that were spectacular because I loved him. And your life also is about a series of beginnings. You graduated from high school and you began life. Some of you may have gotten married immediately. Some of you may have gone off to college. Some off to some trade school. Some of you may have gone right off into the workforce. But it was a new beginning. Whenever you've had one job and then had to change jobs, that's a new beginning. Whenever you've had to move from one location to another, it's a new beginning. When your first child was born, new beginning and you stood in front of the witnesses and had your family and friends there and said, I do, it's a new beginning. For the ones that have been married and, and lost a loved one, a spouse that they had been with for 40, 50, 60 years, then had to learn what it was to be single again in widowhood. It's a new beginning. For the ones that have had a, a fractured life, a wounded period, a marriage dissolved, remarried, a new beginning. If anybody's ever had to stand over a graveside and put a child in that earth, weep and cry, spin about new beginnings. Over and over again, life is about beginning again and starting over, but I can promise you that with every new beginning, if you have God with you, God will create something wonderful. He'll do it every time. He'll dry up every tear. He'll see every situation. Because just like in chapter one, verse number two, God looks down into the midst of the darkness. And the spirit of God begins to move in the midst of your deepest hurts and your deeper pains. And he is moving in order to create light and separate the light from the darkness. Scripture said he made the heaven and the earth. God sits high in the sky. We're made of the dust of the earth. But when you become a Christian, all of your Christian life, the Lord spends his time, time trying to separate light and darkness. He's trying to remove from your life those things that are unscriptural. And he's trying to flood your life with the kind of illumination that provides revelation. And when knowledge comes, it's like shafts of light that are beginning to shine and burst forth in your life. This is why I said we're living in the fullness of the knowledge of God. And the more you know about God, the better your life will be. There's no doubt about it. So God separates the light from the darkness, but all he has to do To cause the darkness to flee is turn the light on. You don't have to curse the darkness when you walk into a dark room. You don't have to scream at the darkness. All you have to do is turn the light on. Flip a switch. You don't have to rebuke the darkness. Just flip the switch. And if you have darkness in any area of your life and you find that you're ignorant of any particular subject related to the, the word of God, you can turn the light on by reading the Bible. Let God deal with your mind. Now let's return to Second Peter chapter 1. And notice... That it says in verse 3, according as his divine power gives all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has a toolbox just for you. God has all the equipment and all the tools that you need to live a godly life. Now the Bible is not going to tell you how to plant flowers in your yard. And the Bible is not going to tell you how to rebuild your engine. It's not even going to tell you how to drive from here to North Platte, And it's certainly not going to give you any information on how to go out and get a job. But the Bible will tell you how to conduct yourself in doing all the things that I just mentioned. By his divine power, he gives you everything that pertains to life. Eternal life, spiritual life, uncreated life. When God made Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden. He gave them everything they needed in the garden for them to sustain themselves in the garden. He said, you can eat of every tree. He provided the food. He put rivers in the garden. He provided them with water. You can see in chapter 2 of Genesis where it talks about by some rivers there was gold and bdellium and onyx stone God put minerals and resources right there in the garden, in the earth. And you realize that everything they needed to obey God's command was given to them in the garden of Eden, but yet they sinned and they broke the covenant that they had with God. But I'm telling you now, by the New Covenant, by the New Testament, your relationship with the king, by his divine power, he's given you everything that you need that pertains to your life and your godliness. God has made it possible for you to be able to eat and to drink. The Bible says, don't worry about tomorrow. You can't control tomorrow. Said tomorrow has its own troubles that are sufficient for that day. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they just kind of spin and blow back in the wind. Consider the birds that fly about from branches to branches. And he said, if, if they're well taken care of, won't God take care of you? Yeah. You may have come through difficult times in your life where you wondered whether or not you'd survive on the farm, on the ranch, at the auto body shop, at home as a homemaker, you wondered if the hospital would go under or if the school would continue to last in that small town, you may have wondered if your job would be pretty much done away with because of budget cuts or whatever but folks I'm telling you you serve a God who has the kind of divine power that gives you everything that pertains to your life and he is specific to who you are. And it's important to realize that everything you need to live for him God is provided. Some of the wealthiest places on this earth are Governed or superintended by some of the poorest people on the planet. Africa has plenty of countries that are sitting on top of millions and billions of dollars of diamonds. But the people are poor. There are plenty of countries that have oil reserves and other kinds of resources that are beneath the earth. They walk on top of it day by day, but yet they haven't been able to exploit it. And the ones who have exploited it have not always shared it with the people that actually live there. But the good thing about God is God shares with us the riches of his grace. By his divine power, he's given you everything. And notice he says, through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. So that tells us again, through the reiteration, how important knowledge is. If I know God and I understand God, then I know that there's a voice calling me to a higher life, calling me to glory and to virtue. God has not called us to defeat. God has not called us to depression. He has not called us to a sad lifestyle of excessive sorrow. He has called us to a glorious and virtuous lifestyle. Style. And you have, you have to, to think, think like that. You can't believe everything people tell you on television. And just, just because there are people in this world that want millions of citizens to live by handouts from the American government, that's not what God has called us to. God wants you to live by faith, believing that from God's hand to your mouth, he can sustain you. He'll use your talents, he'll use your abilities. And when people are looking for a job, they still have to look for a job. They can't sit at home and just wait around the house and expect that one day there's gonna be a knock at the door and there'll be somebody on the outside saying hello, my name is Job, Is someone looking for me. It doesn't work like that. People have to busy themselves, and God works with them. The scripture says he that finds a wife finds a good thing. That means that the search continues until you find that good thing worth finding. And I think when we find one, we're quite pleased. Let me finish up by saying here in verse number four, that precious promises are given to us, and the Bible says that by these we can be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I don't know how many promises there are in the Bible, but I can tell you all of them are great and all of them are precious. The Bible says the promises of God are yes. And amen to each one of us who believe. And folks, if we stand on God's word, we can expect that the king will keep us and that the king will bless us. How can our adherence to the promises of God preserve us from a world filled with lust? Well, Well, he he says says in verse 4 that that we're sharers or partakers of a divine nature. There's something in you and something in me that makes us spiritual now that we're Christian. If Somebody introduces me to a family member and calls them a Christian and then I say something like, well, tell me how you were born again. Then they look at me like I'm speaking a foreign language. I'm wondering what kind of Christianity this is. If I say to them, okay, what's your favorite Bible version? They say, well, oh, you know, I don't read the Bible too much. Well, what Christian songs or music do you like to listen to? Well, I'm not really into that. I like more of country music than I do that Christian stuff. Well, what what church church do you go to? Hadn't really found one yet because Because we've just just kind of been busy doing this or doing that. Well, how long have you been looking? Well, about six years I've been a Christian. See, I know I'm not dealing with someone that is a partaker of the divine knowledge. Now, I know that this person may look like they're Christian and even act like they're Christian. But in the beginning, even weeds that are springing up in your yard looks like grass. Until they get taller and taller. You have to be able to identify fruit and know the difference. I could bring my mother in here right now and I could promise you if she was standing next to me, you'd be able to tell I came from her. And if I brought my dad in here and I walked down the center aisle and then had my dad walk down the center aisle behind me, you'd be able to look and say I can tell he comes from him. And it's It's the same same with with you. you. I I can look look at you, you, and and I can can see see your your children, your grandchildren, your your siblings, your parents, parents, and I'm able to identify identify who you come from, who you're related to, to, on the basis basis of of how you act. act. It may be your eye color. I may be able to see certain habits in your body, but I can promise you, if you're you're born born of God and have the nature of God, you'll act like God. That's what happens. A partaker of the divine nature and the one that doesn't exhibit that divine nature. You have to wonder if there's any divine or divinity in them at all. So it's clear. The promises of God are true, and we can escape the world's lust by holding to the promises of God. This man, Joseph, in the book of Genesis, was greatly beloved of his dad, but was despised by his siblings. His father treated him special, and his brothers didn't like that. They sold him as a slave down into Egypt. In fact, they sold him to his cousins, who took him down into Egypt, who then sold him on that slave market there in Egypt. But he ended up working for a gentleman by the name of Potiphar, and Potiphar had a wife that had a wandering eye. And she was always looking for some man that she could have some little relationship with. And so here now, she's got this beautiful Hebrew boy that's wandering around there in the palace. And so the Bible says in Genesis chapter 39 that Potiphar's wife looked at that Hebrew boy and cast her eye upon him. She started looking at him and started lusting. She started thinking, and you know, might even mention to a couple of her girlfriends, I'm telling you that little Hebrew boy looks good in the Israeli jeans. I, 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 really, I really do like him, and I love To be able to roll around in the hay with him. And Genesis 39 verse 9 says she one day made sure that everybody was outside the palace. And she and Joseph was alone. And she grabbed him and said, please sleep with me. Joseph said, how can I so sin against my employer and against my God? And he took off and ran and she had a grip on him so tight that she held on to his clothing when he tried to run away. Now, gentlemen, you know that lady's got to be holding on pretty tight. If, if she's got a grip on you and it leaves your jacket or some garment and just, just rips it apart. But I mean, I just think about one of the first times I met Tiff and she reached out and wanted to embrace me and didn't want to let me go. Oh, I'm telling you. Wondered if there was going to be some ripped clothes all over the place. But this, this lady, she would not let him go. But here's the thing. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham then taught that promise to Isaac. Isaac taught the promise to Jacob. Jacob taught the promise to his children, Joseph being one of them. And Joseph lived his life in an exemplary way because he knew of the promise of God to his family. And that's why Joseph took off and ran from that woman He did not want to offend God and have the promise of God upon his family broken because of his action. Folks, if you think about the covenant you have with God and what God has done for you and the blessing he's brought into your life, it's those kinds of things that will cause you to turn from sin and iniquity. You don't have to commit adultery. You can run in the opposite direction. You don't have to spend time doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing. You can remember the promise of God and turn your life around. I'm grateful that God put verses like that in the Bible. And I pray that as you all sat and listened this morning, that you can see how important it is to have the knowledge of God to know him personally, and to know him intimately, and to make time for him. I want to pray for all of you right now. I told you earlier, it's Thanksgiving week. We want you to have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. but We're believing that God, by his mighty power, is going to do wonderful and great things for you. And if some preacher comes wandering over to your house on Thanksgiving Day, don't try to quickly pull the shades down when you see the car pulling up in the driveway. Just go ahead and get ready to prepare that extra plate, because he'll be coming with a big appetite. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you, O God, for an opportunity to look into your word. There may be someone today, Lord, listening to my voice, that's facing a new beginning. They may be about to begin again. Father, it is my prayer that they would have you in the beginning, this transition period. Father, there may be somebody here that's ministering throughout the week to somebody having an identity crisis who are needing the knowledge of God in order to understand that they are called to be an image bearer of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray God fill their heart and their mind with the knowledge of God. But then, Lord, as we depart from these grounds, but never from your presence, it is our prayer that the mighty anointing and power of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with us all. We honor you, God. We love you today. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. Praise Praise God. God. If you understood everything and heard it all, honk them horns so I'll know it. Praise Praise God. God. Amen.